This episode of Where Did It All Go Right is sponsored by Pearson. Pearson is the world's learning company, supporting talent and helping everyone to make progress in their lives through learning. Working with teachers and education experts, Pearson provides a wide range of qualification routes so you can pick the course which suits you best to develop your skills and stand out in the crowd. Visit them online at go.pearson.com forward slash where did it all go right. Hello, this is Where Did It All Go Right? Welcome back if you've listened to previous episodes and hi if you're new to the podcast. We hope we're providing some respite in these challenging times. I'm Ali Jones and we've got another great guest who will tell you about the pivotal moments in his career. We hope to inspire and entertain you. Now, this week's guest is musician Reese Lewis. His debut album, Things I Chose to Remember, is out on July the 10th. He's racked up thousands of downloads and views online of his music, but the album and his tour have been put back because of coronavirus. We spoke thanks to technology during lockdown. He was in his caravan where he's working on his second album and I sat by my piano pretending I was just as brilliant. Uh, We talked about how he got to do the job he loves. Reese, firstly, uh, thank you so much for talking to me. How is lockdown going? Uh, we were just talking before I pressed record about battles for Wi-Fi in your house. Yeah. But is it is it not too stressful? Well, you know what? That's pretty much the only thing I have to complain about at the minute, the Wi-Fi. So if, if that's the only thing, I think I'm doing all right. I'm, I'm very lucky, actually, because I'm uh, sort of hibernating, uh, self-isolating in a studio in Cambridgeshire, uh, writing a second album. So I've, I've kind of managed to stay productive and uh, keep busy in this time of well these very strange times so I feel very fortunate to be in the position I'm in at the minute but obviously still very strange because you know what we don't really know what the future holds but uh, for for the time being I'm sort of taking each day as it comes really. I love the fact you're writing your second album and you haven't even released your first. (laughs) I know it's confusing and actually to make matters worse tomorrow I'm releasing a song uh, that's uh, from the second album because I wrote it in quarantine or isolation about the kind of times we're in and my, my manager and my label heard it and go, we have to put this one out. And I said, well, it's for my second album. And go, yeah, well, it doesn't matter about that. And obviously the second, the first <laughs> album hasn't even arrived yet. So it's a bit of a strange <laughs> thing. And actually it is, 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 is quite weird as an artist because you're constantly ahead of what's going to be released. But in this respect, mm. I'm doubly ahead because... I've already kind of pretty much written a second album and uh, the first one, as you say, isn't out. So it's, it's a strange time to be in creatively. You're, but you're I, time travelling. You really are. Yeah, I know. And then I go back to these I'm releasing songs in the next few weeks that I've written, you know, a year or two ago. And, and it's, it's, it's obviously really exciting, but it's, um, it's a strange thing because you have to go back to what you did and it doesn't feel as exciting sometimes when there's that distance between yes. what you've made and, and what you're making, I suppose, now. Yeah, because, I mean, I know that the, the, the debut album is, is being put back and your tour as well, which yeah. which must be frustrating, but also, as you say, confusing because when you do get asked questions about the first album, your head is in the second album, isn't it? Yeah, and, and there's an, I think every songwriter or musician would say that the, the, the last song they wrote is their favourite. <laughs> so it's uh, <laughs> it's that, that curse of being a songwriter. You're really excited about your new work and you think it's the best thing you've ever written I think that enthusiasm you had for your previous work and as you say the emotions that were attached to that uh, period of time or that song you wrote back then uh, are slightly diluted but based on just being so far away from the events that you know made or inspired them so I think it is a strange thing to go back and talk about those songs and especially that a lot of them are quite autobiographical it's it's a weird thing to go oh yeah it's like reading a page in your diary from a few years ago and having to kind of speak about it as if it was yesterday so it's a funny thing but it, I do find it really actually quite nice because I don't listen to my own music I don't really and obviously the album's not out so I'm not like playing it on Spotify every now and again so when actually I, I get to release the songs that I you know recorded last year I go oh yeah we did that and that was an amazing you know that was an amazing <laughs> month of recording music and it actually it's, it, it comes with lots of fond memories of, of the process as much as writing it so yeah. And does it but does it feel weird that's, that people when they'll get this album they will be in their bedrooms or in their cars or wherever they're listening to it, mm. listening to your, your innermost thoughts. Because as you said, it's like a diary and, and you're sharing that. You, do, you wouldn't get people reading your diary, would you? Well, hopefully. No. And actually, it's a funny thing a lot of people say, does it, does it feel strange to share very personal thoughts and feelings uh, through your music? And 
at first I, it, it actually really did and, and I remember being sort of 17 18 year old thinking thinking I knew what love was you know when you have a first love at school or whatever it is and mm. um, I think I felt very sort of vulnerable actually and really shy to share those stories and and I think the more you do it and the more you get used to kind of sharing your feelings in that way the, the more sort of used to it and comfortable you become and actually I forget sometimes that I'm going on stage and the song actually means something because you, you sing it so many times, you you know, you, you go and perform so many different venues to different crowds that it suddenly becomes second nature and you forget sometimes that the lyrics you're saying have a story or have a meaning. You're just in sort of autopilot. So it's gone from being something that I was really nervous about doing and sharing to being something that sometimes I forget I'm even doing or uh, it can actually feel really freeing and quite liberating to actually be able to feel comfortable putting something quite real and raw and sometimes emotional into a song and, and, and know that there are other people listening to it that sort of connect with it and feel some form of, I don't know, emotion too, or, you know, that, that I've summed up something that they feel, is, which is a powerful thing. I think thing. that's wonderful. It is. It's really wonderful that what you've written then resonates with, with somebody else in a maybe completely different situation, but they can they can pick up some of uh, your feelings and, and, and bring it into their own lives. That must be so satisfying as a songwriter that it, I'm sure people have said to you, oh, this song means so much to me because... Absolutely. And, and also, as you said, some of the stories you hear of what that song means to them, is it's completely different to yours. And even though you wrote something very specific about a moment in your life, it can actually be recontextualized into someone else's and mean something totally different. And, and that's genuinely is really amazing, especially with how easy it is to connect with fans and hear those stories these days. When I get mm. messages from people about songs, it's uh, it makes everything real because... There are times when you definitely get caught up in the numbers and you're looking at Spotify monthly listeners and Apple and all that and uh, and, and Instagram followers and that's all important stuff and I know that there's a there's a there's a place for that kind of thinking and that kind of um, analysis but if you get taken too far down that road by by the numbers I think you forget that behind every number there's often the person who really enjoys your music and that that number's not just a bit of data it's actually someone who might have wanted to get that lyric tattooed on their on their arm and 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 actually that song means something to them and if you get a few messages like that it really does mean the world and it makes you realize that what you what you were aiming to do with your music is to connect with people and that that's a nice reminder to to, to kind of see not just see the numbers you know and are you finding in lockdown that you're getting great responses? Because you're doing these uh, these Friday night gigs and, and caravan sessions. So you've got a caravan. I've got a and caravan. <laughs> Who'd have thought? <laughs> Who, who's got a caravan in lockdown in their garden? I know. Amazing. Well, it's the it's in the it's in the lo- it's in the garden of the studio. It's the accommodation that the studio offers. Um, so there's an upstairs mezzanine where I'm actually here with my producer and good friend Aiden Aiden Glover, who's a keyboard player, and he produced the first record with me. And he's been here with his girlfriend and she's a songwriter as well. So she's been, since the lockdown, we've been here together, actually. They've been upstairs in the mezzanine bit and then I've taken the caravan because it's not really, uh, well, it's a bit bit more pokey and uh, I'm not sure Kelly, Aiden's girlfriend, liked the spiders when we first went in there and uh, had a look <laughs> at it. So it's, I must admit, it's rough and ready, but it's got its charm and it's uh, it's been really nice. It's, it actually feels like home now and, and a caravan life is, is, is wonderful. I mean... T- tell you the truth, there's there's a there's a there's a train track about twenty meters from my pillow, and uh, it does uh, you get like goods trains going through there f- from like six in the morning till oh, probably no. eleven twelve o'clock at night. So it's not, th- and then obviously the light comes in because the windows are terrible and the blinds <laughs> don't really work, and oh and all the birds are tweeting in the morning. So it's I would say in terms of sleep, I definitely got better sleep when I was in London. But I for, for what I gain from being here, the space and obviously having a studio here, it's. Uh, it's worth the sleepless nights or the early mornings. So, but also it's good practice for when you go back on tour. Oh yeah, and you're going to be sleeping wherever I don't know on a tour bus somewhere. You're going to be like, this is just easy. I've I'm, I've been primed for this. Exactly. I got used to. <laughs> well, actually, I think my my touring last year primed me for this because uh, I think uh, last year's schedule was basically I was pretty much living in a caravan in an RV in America. So it's kind of primed me for also having good. Um, being a kind of tidy camper because if you don't if you don't keep your your, your caravan in good order you oh, very no, quickly yes. oh it's it's bad if you don't make that bed into a living room 
you can get into some serious trouble mentally. <laughs> you need to make sure that you're turning it into a day space and then at night, you know, seeing it's a bedroom because, you know, you've only got one little little bit of space. You need to make it dynamic. That's why they're made to be like that. So uh, I've, oh, I've been the, yeah, sweeping out in the mornings and stuff. Have you? Are you an expert at putting the bed up? Because that's quite an art, doing it quickly. Because you know, we used to go on caravan holidays as a kid and I was just like in the morning, it's like, oh God, I've got to sort yeah. the bed out before we can actually have breakfast. That's it. Well, I've, I've gotten pretty smooth at doing it and I've, I've worked out a system where I need to move the least amount of pillows to make sure I can slide things over to fit in and it's it's quite it looks like I mean I don't want to say formula one pit stop but it's getting there <laughs> it's getting there it's pretty good uh so yeah I've been I've been perfecting it and working out the best strategy but it's uh yeah it's actually really nice living in there and, and it, you realize how little space you need as a human being and how yeah. c- sort of how happy you can feel uh, in just making a nest in that kind of way it's like obviously you don't have the the luxuries of space that you'd you'd have if you were living in a house but I don't miss it necessarily you kind of get used to it and you go oh, I'm fine I've got a few drawers I've got f-. and I haven't got many clothes of me as well so it's, there's not that dilemma of choosing what to wear in the morning not, well, not that anyone well you haven't got to go anywhere exactly have I mean have you I mean I've pretty much lived in the same pair of shorts and t-shirt yes. for the last three days and it's, it's been like that for most of the last few months but I think you know this whole lockdown thing I think everyone is realizing we don't need much stuff do you like life can be pretty simple just sort of being at home, existing with who you live with, and, yeah. and not you're not having to clock watch and go out and and see certain people at a certain time. It's actually quite liberating, isn't it? Yeah, and and that pressure, not as you say, not to go out and not to feel like you have to socialise. I think I'm one of those people that's very much because I live in London. It's a social place to be, and there's lots of friends that live there. So I often, if I'm if I'm going through London on the way home or um, whatever from from the studio someone you know you might get a text or you might think oh, i should probably go and see a friend or whatever and, and that that kind of um what's the what's the it's like that expectation that you should be or the uh, obligation to be seeing your friends and family um sometimes weighs heavy i'm not i'm not, not sure if, if you feel the same but uh, mm. uh, uh living in a city like that i do feel like there's a sort of expectation to be social and to be enjoying the city life and, and certainly mm. being away from that and, and even, as you say just being with the people you live with it can be really relaxing and actually it you, you, I think I'll sort of value the social side of my life more doing it less and actually really purposefully saying I, I do feel like socialising tonight and, and it's quite exhausting if you're out every night or if you're out a few nights a week and you don't get that time to yourself and I'm definitely one of those people that forgets to make time to just be at home and you know get an early night or cook or whatever because I just get taken with someone saying do you want to go for a pint or do you fancy going for dinner and it's so easy to say yeah go on then and I think yeah. uh, being more purposeful with actually the time you get at home and and enjoying it with with whoever you live with is is actually so I've I've found that a really nice thing for the for yeah I think you're right but but having said that it must be pretty frustrating when this album that you work so hard at it is being delayed but it's it's going to come out so things I chose to remember is sort of later summer is that right and then the tour as well it's going to later summer yeah so I think it do you know I should know this my manager will kill me for not knowing I think it's (laughs) July. 10th I want to say um summertime yeah yeah it yeah, could yeah, yeah, yeah be subject to change anyway couldn't it exactly I think it'll I think it'll come out that that time I think we we put it back from April just hoping that maybe uh the situation would have gotten better to the point of being able to do the shows that I had planned with the tour uh, sorry with the album but I think knowing that the situation's much more serious than well it's kind of just it's been evolving every day so just knowing that the situation won't go back to quote-unquote normal for a while I think it'll probably just come out in in July and, and the shows that I was going to do with that tour will just be pushed back to the f- first available dates we can do so um mm. it's a, it is a shame but there are so many other things to be worried about and and, and sure. uh focusing on so I'm I'm glad that at some point it's going to come out and it'll be a really nice thing to look forward to in this strange time <laughs> But and also though, isn't it wonderful that you have got this album, this this body of work that you've done? Um, it's led to this point, and I think it's really important to talk to you because we've spoken to other uh, acts who have. Oh, that was my doorbell. Did you? What have you got? What have you been ordering? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Photos came earlier, so oh no, it's my next door neighbour with some yeast because we're going to make bread. Oh, lovely! That's exciting. Do you find yes. that I've been finding I've just been ordering things because I like post, just because it's an event. <laughs> So yeah. I've, just been, I've just been ordering books that I definitely won't get through because I just think it's nice to receive something in the post. It's just like something to look forward to. It's like Christmas, isn't it? It's wonderful. Yeah. Um, I was making a very serious point sorry, then. Sorry, and then I got that. No, what I was going to say is because we've spoken to lots of um, artists who've, who've got more established careers. And I think it's really lovely to speak to you because really you're just starting out, even though you probably feel like you've been doing it for quite a long time. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, but it, it must be wonderful to have 
this this album, this body of work. Um, and so you've got to a point where so many people want to have that a record deal mm. and a you know loads of people watching what you do um, on YouTube or, or whatever. So if we rewind to, to where you to how you got to that, I suppose. Did you always want to do this? Have you always played music? Did it start like that for you, or is this something that's that's it's quite a new thing? It's it's something that evolved through, I guess, learning an instrument. I started out learning uh well everyone learns recorder don't they but i went to yes. recorder lessons uh and then i quickly moved on to the clarinet uh and i i really enjoyed learning an instrument but i i don't think i fell in love with the clarinet and certainly when i started to get into enjoying music and finding bands i liked there was no clarinet on the led zeppelin album so i feel like <laughs> all the music i started to listen to i wasn't able to express the kind of energy i felt i wanted to with with the clarinet um see it'd be all right now because lizzo plays the flute so i say to my daughter oh look you play the flute because lizzo's cool she plays the flute there but there's no there's no clarinet is that i can't think of anything that would be sort of my usp wouldn't it if i'd have just been yeah. the, the clarinet playing singer songwriter i could have rocketed to the top <laughs> of the charts as no one's doing it are they um but yeah i i kind of i i really enjoyed music but i think by the time i got i think i was about 11 and i picked up the guitar I think that's when I got obsessed with it. I think before then, I was having to be forced to practice by my parents and they go, you know, you've got to do your grades and all that. And I, I, I did do it and I liked doing it, but it wasn't something that I was doing of, of my own accord. And then when I found the guitar, my dad had a sort of dusty guitar in the, in the corner of the living room that he'd bust the blues on every now and again. And, and, and he, I just said to him one day, well, I, think my, I don't think my hands are even big enough to get around the guitar, but I just said to him, could you teach me the, the blues? And he taught me the blues and I just spent hours and hours until my fingers were red raw trying to learn the blues. And then eventually I got my own guitar and then had a few lessons. And then it was just an evo sort of evolution from playing guitar to then playing in bands and thinking, you know, let's try and write songs to sound like the Arctic Monkeys or Fratelli's <laughs> or whoever it was at the time that we were obsessed with. And then that's in a way, that's the early sort of f formation of your of your songwriter instincts, I suppose, because you're, you're basically imitating. And I think all creativity starts with a process of imitation and, and and certainly I look back on that kind of early work I say work it wasn't work but you know what I mean that early those early days of playing in bands and you're listening to records you like and you're going how have they made that and that what, what chord progression they're using and all of those things you're basically just nicking them copying them and then I suppose uh, making them your own at some point and, and I think as time's gone on you get more f aware of how to make things your own or stop referencing as much and and, and actually I, I ended up going to going through all the grades at guitar and then getting into songwriting and all of those classic great songwriters like Carole King and Bill Withers and James Taylor and all of that and then I thought I'd love to do this as a career and I thought I'd, I'd like to do it I didn't think of myself much as a singer because I wasn't a singer I was just a guitarist that liked writing songs in bands and then when all my friends went off to university, I was actually weirdly working as a chef and uh, thinking, should I carry on doing this or should I just go to university and study music and try and find a way of being a songwriter? And uh, I just, I, so I, I basically took a course of, did a songwriting course, well, a degree in music and um, went to London with the aim of being a songwriter, not an artist. And I think, again, it just evolved into wanting to sing the songs I started writing. I was trying to hope to hopefully get a publishing deal to start writing for other artists or for bands or for whatever it was, because I just loved the puzzle of writing songs. And then slowly I got more confident at singing because I was writing these songs. And and then weirdly ended up at the end of university sort of thinking, oh, am I an artist? Is that what I'm doing now? And, and it was only when I wrote, there was one song called No Right to Love You that I wrote that it felt like it was the first time I really believed that something I'd written and I was performing or singing at open mic nights was felt like me and not something I was trying to just write as a song. It felt like something I really wanted to keep hold of. And that was when um, I thought, oh, actually, I, I wouldn't mind doing this artist thing. Because I have no right to love you when I chose to walk away. I have no right to miss you when I didn't want to stay. Have no right to need you when I knew what my heart was gonna lose. I have no right to love you, but I do. I still do. Yeah, I still do. This artist thing seems all right to me. Yeah. But you, you, you talked about your dad and he taught you the blues. So were your parents musical? Was it a bit of a, a musical family? They're not, actually. My, my dad, uh, I, one of my most uh, the horrible moments when I was a kid, when I, I, I was 
I'd, I'd learned guitar. I was about 13, 14. I thought I was, you know, really good at guitar. And, and I remember going through to my dad and he was playing the blues. And my dad's, he would say it himself, he's not very good at guitar. He's got a few, few chords under his fingers. And as a really arrogant 14-year-old who'd like basically done grade eight, um, I went to my dad and I said, I used to think you were good at guitar. And he reminded me this not long ago. And I thought, what, how much of a kick in the face is that? You, <laughs> you teach your kid how to play guitar. You lend him your guitar. You pay for his lessons. You get him all the way through the grades. You, you take him to concerts. You take him to practice, all this stuff. You buy him a guitar amp. And then he comes through the conservatory one day when you're playing your own guitar. And he says, I used to think you were good. And I felt so horrible. And I thought... I, that's what that that sums up parenting doesn't it for most for the <laughs> most part so uh yeah uh, he, but he's he's uh, we're not a musical family my, my parents really love music and we listen to a lot of like my mum's a big big madonna and she loves motown um she's a big madonna fan loves motown so yeah i um and my dad's kind of into the sort of the doors and the who and all of that stuff so we did listen to a lot of music but they're not musical people they don't play my my mum is tone deaf and my dad doesn't he sort I'm of, not sure she'd appreciate you saying that she would admit it because I've tried to get my mum to sing but she would and she'll only ever sing to the radio when Gary Barlow's on so that's uh, <laughs> but that's that's pushing it I think she only so yeah just get out of the way as soon as you hear take that on radio too so when your song's on the radio she's not going to sing along to your songs but she'll sing along to a take that you know song I, I would be offended <laughs> by that sometimes I am uh, I, there's times when my mum's uh, my mum constantly goes I'm going to write Gary Barlow a letter when honestly when when when, when when I was sort of getting into music and I was going into the kind of artist side of things and um, I w- I, she would, she'd really want me to, you know, she'd want me to get to a, a be- you know, bigger stage, bigger audience. And, and apparently she knew where Gary Barlow lived because my, one of our friends does scaffolding and ended up doing scaffolding for Gary Barlow, as you do. And so it got to the point where my mum says, I'm going to write Gary Barlow a letter. I know where he lives and I'm going to post it down to Gary Barlow's letterbox and I'm going to tell him about you. And I'm going to, you know, I think he'd, I think he would, he loves young talent and he'd love to hear your music. And I just said, mum, please don't ever write Gary Barlow. And apparently, apparently she's written it, but she's never sent it. But I just, oh. and then it went full circle. I ended up playing Hyde Park, uh, one of those <laughs> British summertime festival things. And it yeah. just so happened to be the same day as Take That. And uh, I got to meet Mark Owen. I didn't meet, I didn't meet uh, Gary, but the whole day, my mum, I could just tell because I had like a backstage pass. And so my mum, my mum was the whole day was like, are you going to go, you're going to go, you're going to go backstage or anything? And I was like, yeah, I might do in a bit. And she's like, is, is, um, is Gary there? Is it? I just knew she was not there. I was like my biggest ever gig. And I could just tell she was, she was only there for the free ticket to see Gary Barlow. But hey, she idolises Gary, so I, I can understand. But um, yeah, it's quite funny. Well, that's lovely, though. It it's lovely. lovely, the fact that, that she's really supporting you. And because I was going to ask how they feel about you saying, you know, at the time when you did your music, because I did a music degree, um, yep. but I used to get D double pluses from a composition. So it sounds to me like you were a whole lot better. And we also did a lot of atonal stuff, which oh, sounds, wow. yours yours was a lot better than mine. Mine was probably just a bit weird. <laughs> but um, did they really support you in what you wanted to do? Or did they say, uh, songwriter, are you sure? Well, I think considering they're both teachers, actually. So considering even just being freelance or self-employed uh, is is different to, to the way they've kind of, I don't know, felt yeah. felt secure, even just financially through their lives. And, and I think that that kind of, I think you always worry about your kids, I'm sure. So I think that feeling of not being able to maybe even give any advice about it because it's something they don't know anything about. So they were always extremely supportive, but there was that kind of, air on the side of caution thing when my mum said well what you know you could come home after uni and you could do your teaching degree and you could do that and I knew and, I, and she, it was coming from the right place because obviously songwriting and being an artist is so it's really really difficult industry to to make a living from and to support your life with and so even now I, I do still worry about the future going what's going to happen in like three or four years time like I don't know I don't really know if I have a career yet but I do know I'm, I'm I'm lucky to have been doing it for so long and um but yeah I think they've they've always been cautious and their advice has sometimes just been maybe you should have a backup plan but that's just natural isn't it and the only thing I think is that if you sometimes if I have a backup plan you, you you'd, you'd sort of plan for that and it becomes the plan a and and I, I've yes. always I, was, I, I thought if I'd moved back to 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 so my parents after university and tried to kind of you know do the teaching course and then uh, go back into being an artist or a songwriter I think I'd have gotten too comfortable and and, and that that kind of I don't know even that risk of, of not having a backup plan I think sometimes propels you to to, to to sort of fight even harder for something and I think having a sometimes having a plan b is uh, is dangerous. <laughs> 
I think that's really true. And I think you've got to, you know, I've spoken to a lot of people about this and they just say, just keep going, keep mm. going, keep going. Because uh, otherwise you don't know, you'd regret it, wouldn't you, if you just didn't give it a really good go. And, you Definitely. know, the fact that you've got this this album coming out, you've got you've got a record deal. I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, so you leave uni, you wanted to be get a publishing deal so so mm. what happened next how did you get a deal how did you get a manager how did that all work so i was uh, i'd left university and i was actually writing jingles for tv commercials because a friend of mine who had he was the year above me had gone into this uh advert agency a uh, sort of um music agency for syncing uh music to adverts and tv and things and he called me up one day and said, Reese, are you able to do a little recording for this Clover Butter, of all things, Clover Butter commercial? And it's like a cover of, you know that, well, we all love Clover all over this land. You know that oh, one? Oh, beautiful. Yeah, it's yes. a wonderful song. I don't know who wrote it, but um, I got asked to do a, an acoustic guitar version <laughs> with, with probably like, because it, it was like 2012, everyone wanted mandolin or ukulele or something like that. It was very in. And so I bought... Not recorders or clarinets. no. Damn it! I wish, I wish. Um, so I, I literally went out and bought a ukulele and uh, and, a, and a mandolin, and I, I started um, producing this little thing. And then I ended up getting the the advert. So then from that point on, it was just before I left uni. I was I'd started getting sent briefs for for TV and um, adverts and things like that. So I was doing that to try and sort of keep in London and, and make some money and pay my rent. And whilst I was doing that, I was getting better at producing things and working from, you know, logic from home. And when I was in the studio, according to the agency, I was basically just in my bedroom eating cereal all day, haven't changed, <laughs> I was still in my pyjamas, uh, making this music. Dreaming and, of clover butter. Exactly. On, honestly, I, I reckon I, I've probably been, I worked on that till like three in the morning for four nights straight just because I wanted to get it and ended up, yeah, luckily it paid off. But um, yeah, so I was doing that and, and it was just, it was great because I was doing music every day. It wasn't obviously, uh, artistic but it was it afforded me the time and the stability to carry on working and writing songs and I just I was trying to write as many songs as possible in the time I had outside of that sort of work and then I started writing I went through a breakup which was which was sad and I, I wrote a few songs around that and one of them as I said was this one song No Right To Love You and I, I ended up sort of just sending it out to a few people and then uh, getting a nice response from people and then a few managers heard and ended up um, contacting but I didn't actually fish around for managers it they, they all just started to sort of get in touch which was a bit strange because I'd never thought about having a manager and at that point I thought well, maybe a manager could help me get a publishing deal and does songwriters have managers I don't know how it works and then I spoke to a few managers and they said well we think you could really sell the stuff you're writing and you know have you ever thought about doing that and that felt like a interesting prospect so then ended up working with a manager for a while and he was the one who ended up putting a song online with me on SoundCloud. And then from the SoundCloud demo came a few labels that started emailing and then labels started turning up to these showcases that we were putting on. And it, it, it weirdly started, it felt quite, I don't know how it happens these days, but I didn't have, I didn't have like a YouTube following or a social media presence. I, I, I didn't even have Instagram. I, okay. I, I, no. I was literally unknown completely. And I just put one song on SoundCloud and everything happened from there. I didn't, I, I had to, I think I created a music profile after that. It was uh, sort of for Instagram and things and, and YouTube was a non-starter. So I, I didn't have this kind of, I thought you had to have 50,000 followers on Instagram and loads of hits on Spotify and I didn't have any of that. So I, it all came as a bit of a surprise because I expect... sounds quite easy. There's going to be a lot of people listening who are tr desperate to break through and going, this is really well, annoying this is, because no, it's just, I, I wrote a song and it... <laughs> no, but that's that's the thing. And, uh, and often people go, how do you, you know, how do you get yourself out there? How do you make it? And the truth be told is... I genuinely believe, having met a lot, a lot of A&R people in the industry and managers and people that work at labels and, and, and publishing companies, they, as obviously as important as those numbers are and that following is, if they hear something that they think they can work with and that it's exciting, I think they, they, they're interested. And, and that's quite a nice thing to realise. And I think a lot of the time when artists, especially new artists or people that are getting into music, f focus so much on their social media, making it look really good and getting as many followers as possible, hashtagging and all of that stuff. That's mm. There's a huge game that can be played in that respect. And it, it's not to say that it doesn't work. I'm sure it does. But it's nice to know that there are plenty of people in the industry that are still looking for music and not looking for that kind of... They're, they're looking for proper musicians to find or, or proper songs to work with. And so I think focusing on that part of your creativity or your output it, for me is, is is the most important thing because you can have as 
as many fans in the world. Well, I don't know. Maybe maybe you can sell a bad song, I suppose. But yeah, I think <laughs> I think it's it's good to focus on 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 your artistry and your creativity over trying to look cool on Instagram initially. So um, I, yeah, initially, I suppose. Then the key though is to be successful. You have to keep working really hard and do gigs and. Mm. Um, and, and radio play important as well as the internet still. I well, I, I mean, of course, if if you're if you're played on Radio One and you know all the likes of the c- kind of big commercial stations, it's amazing. I I haven't had loads and loads of radio support, but I think what's nice about um, the day and age we live in is that radio used to be the the the, the only way, the be all and end all for for any artist breaking. It was either that or touring a record and getting yourself out there in that respect. But now with Spotify, there are ways to to create and grow a fan base. Uh, with music that otherwise wouldn't have been radio friendly or whatever the radio is looking for. It doesn't have to follow. A lot of the time, radio has to be upbeat and uh, mm. follow a trend of what's cool. And I think with Spotify, it's 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 allowed, and, and other streaming services, it's allowed uh, artists that would, not, would have found it much harder to create an audience or a fan base. Uh, it's given them a platform to do that. And, and I think I'm one of those people. I don't think I write bangers. You know what I mean? I, I, don't, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I, I write sort of kind of contemplative musical kind of uh acoustic-y type things so I, I don't think don't worry yeah. somebody will put a dance mix underneath it and exactly. then you'll get your banger out well I, honestly you say that but my label sent me a, a remix of one of my emotional <laughs> ballads and it made me sick um <laughs> honestly I mean I know it's part of it I know it's part of it but uh my my my, my A&R guy Sam he's amazing but he he sent to me he goes what do you think and I just said well I, I don't I can't listen to it I'm sure it's good for what it is but I it's like it's like butchering it's like oh I don't know I can't even explain it's like yeah it's horrible so uh yeah, yeah I can't it's listen not to quite it. well there, maybe there are other ways um but maybe that just wasn't quite the right mix she says diplomatically yeah yeah yeah, yeah, I yeah, don't yeah. Know. but no I mean going back <laughs> to the kind of uh like way in it, there there is no way in but I think as you say it's just hard work over a long period of time and I I did I, I do look back and go, well, I, it wasn't like overnight. Like I, it, a lot of those conversations I was having were born of the fact that I'd been in music and finding um, contacts and, and ways to get in, into the industry over a long period of time. So even though it kind of sort of happened quite quickly, I think it was a case of getting to know the industry over a course of maybe three or four years before really understanding like what channels were best to approach getting a manager or speaking to labels and things like that. So it's a, it's a really weird... Uh, industry but I think there are there are lots of ways to to be successful in it or to to get yourself heard and so that was just one Mm. of the ways I suppose that I ended up kind of but there must have been times though when because I know you had a manager before the one you've got now and and when things don't always go quite right were were there ever times when you think maybe this isn't quite for me and I should do something else or has that never occurred to you at the moment oh I mean it occurs to me I think on those days where you feel low about whatever you might just wake up in a bad mood and you, you haven't gotten much out the door or what you know you, you, your work's been pretty slow and no one's bought any tickets for your show yet whatever it is and you have those days where you go what am I doing and I and and, and also you, you it's a it's a huge even though it's a it's a it's a self-inflicted one it's a huge sacrifice because you I miss a lot of other stuff in my life or I certainly put a lot of other things on hold and, and even to the point of you know relationships or even living in a certain place or whatever you, you I, I've ended up going I, I kind of need to be in London for this and it makes my life easier for work and all that stuff and everyone does it in their life everyone makes these sacrifices and I think with music it's one of those things that can kind of be all consuming because it's really hard to put down it's not a nine to five and and I found that as I've had those low moments in my life I've gone have I just been working at this like quote-unquote dream um hoping to get somewhere with it but actually I've been missing so much well so many other parts to life that are actually really fulfilling and enjoyable and and friendships and and relationships being such a huge part is I've I've kind of many times in my life I thought I've really really been neglecting those and so there are definitely those moments where I've doubted whether all this energy all of this time and money and effort to to kind of reach a point where you feel like you're sustainable and what you're doing is 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 a is a career um you look back and I go I'm I'm nearly 30 like I've I've not had a significant relationship for five years and I've not been on a holiday and I don't really do much with my weekends and you go have I have I just really made a terrible decision here to try and chase a sort of 
this sort of golden chalice and actually at the end of it it's a little bit hollow I don't know that that's so some days I do really think that and I question whether all of that the way I'm doing it is actually long-term f- fulfilling but it's really really refreshing to to hear you be so honest about that because I think a lot of people would just imagine you know they see maybe the, the goldy glitzy bits you know they see you in a video on the internet um playing your music and just think oh it must be amazing but yeah. there's you know there's a lot of quiet times and there's a lot of time when you're on your own being quite contemplative yeah there? yeah there is actually and and even on tour tour is one of my I, I really love being on tour and I really love playing live and it's one of the reasons I kind of in, sort of got into being an artist because I did actually find it really um inspiring and, and kind of I, I, you get an adrenaline rush when you're on stage and you're, and you're playing with other people or you're playing to a, a group you know a big crowd but um on tour it's it's after you know the not you get those days where they're magical and the night's amazing and everything falls into place but the majority of tour is really really tough and again it's self-inflicted because you choose to do it and it's like it's a career path I've, I've decided to do myself but as you say it's it's a kind of from the outside I think it looks like tours a real laugh and you get to travel all around and uh, it's all rock and roll and really fun but in reality you've got to save your voice you can't go out you barely get any sleep you don't eat very well you don't see the city that you play in you you have to do a sound check get a shower and go on and then leave so there's I think uh, I've I've learned to love it for what it is but I think what mm. most people think it is it isn't. So I think I really love talk as the camaraderie of going through something that's pretty much ridiculous, but for the reasons of the fact that you don't get any sleep for three months of your life I'm sure it's like I reckon it's preparing me for parenting and I don't I, I by the way I don't want to sound like being on tours like being a parent because that would be disrespectful but in terms of like the sleep deprivation I feel like uh to be able to kind of get used to what that feels like is is probably a good thing so um yeah I I, I think it's uh it's definitely good to be I think I've been, been become more honest with myself as well like over the past few years going it's okay to question whether it's the right thing and if you're missing out on something because if you are there might be a way of re- readjusting your balance of what you do and, and or your work and your life sort of thing and, and actually do it differently and I feel like I have started to strike a balance with um, seeing music as work even though it's very attached to me you know creatively and and, and emotionally it's it has to, I have to see it as, as another as just something I do but not everything I do because mm. I'm more than a musician and, and and you know everyone's more than their job but I think you can very easily step into this this idea that music is everything and this is my life and I'm attached to it so much that I can't put it down and I think that's a myth and something that I potentially think a lot of people hold on to because they think if you feel that way then it means that it's um, that you're doing more or you're, you're you know you're increasing your chance of success but actually I, I, I've started to think well actually if I saw it more as something that's a job or I'm attached or I can go to and put down when I need to I can have a much healthier relationship with it and come back to uh, to, to, to doing the work or to, to creating music with a with with more um, vitality I suppose from having a break from it and so I've definitely found that over the past few years I've started to even just having a studio now instead of a home studio I can actually go to work and not just wake up turn my computer on before I've had a shower and my breakfast and start working I've, I've actually got barriers and borders between my lives and being a musician and being a person so uh yeah. I think, yeah, I think that's really a good idea, sort of having a, a, a better balance. But um, also, though, I suppose it is a part of you because when you when I see you sing and it's so powerful, it's like a release, isn't it? I mean, we all enjoy singing and it's all really, it's a really good feeling, isn't it? To sort of just let it all out. Yeah. Uh, but it's also important to separate it, I suppose, from your normal life. It, it's getting that balance. Yeah. And, and, and I think um, it is hard to strike and... Hopefully, uh, as time goes on, I'll get better at doing it. But it's it, it can be, I don't know. I do, I, I do. It does get. I do get. I get quite anxious about things at times, and I think singing is one of those things that I get quite anxious about because I wasn't a trained singer, and I still don't think I'm. Uh, I I know I'm a competent vocalist now because I've had a few lessons. But when I first got into it and I first started singing and touring and doing things like that more regularly. I was so nervous because I, I didn't warm up and I didn't know how to warm up and all that stuff. And I found myself really anxious and nervous about going on stage and, and doing that because I felt quite comfortable in a studio and mm. doing all that. Uh, but then when so it. So, how did you get over that then? I, I ended up having a sort of a number of lessons because I found that. There was no obviously with anything you can if you're if you're doing it every day but your your technique's bad you're just you're sort of um, reinforcing the problem and I found that the more I was t- sort of touring and 
singing every day, the more I'd realized my voice was getting tired and I was doing damage. So I went to see a vocal um, uh, tutor and she was amazing, Lorna Blackwood. Um, and yeah, she, she just gave me lots of tips and told me what I was doing well, told me what I wasn't doing so well. And over the course of about six months, I got really uh, prepared for the next uh, year or so of touring. And then by that point, I, I felt like I, I was confident going on stage, even though I'm still nervous, I felt more equipped to actually give a good vocal and consistent vocal performance. Because when you look at the amount of talent out there and like people that are really working hard every single day at their singing, I'm not one of those people. I, I spend most of my day writing and <laughs> fiddling with the computer and trying to make things sound good. And then when it comes to singing, I'm, I still feel like a bit of an amateur compared to the likes of, uh, the, you know, the, the, the big voices out there. So uh, I, I'm glad that people think I have a nice voice, but I also, I'm, I'm very, it does, it's one of those things that I think is a, still something I, could, I really need to work on. Um, but you yeah. talk about um, the big voices out there because there, I mean, there is a lot of competition at the moment oh, for huge. male singer-songwriters. You picked a bad time. You do know that, don't you? I know it's terrible, but it's great because it, especially when with the likes of, I mean, you know, I'm sure people would raise Lewis Capaldi and the likes of Sam Fender in there and Tom Walker or those people with massive voices. Um, Chris Stapleton, actually, I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's one of those people yeah. that I, I, I listen to and I go, Apps, that's absolutely phenomenal. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of, you see them play in life and it just makes you want to raise your game because you go, well, if that's that's the that's the status quo now, you go, I've, I really want to be considered as, as good or as strong as that. And so, uh, yeah, it's a nice, I think, you know, the competition out there is ridiculous, but I don't really see it as competition. I just see it as people that are doing amazing things that make you want to make what you do even more sort of amazing if you can you know have they um any of them mentored you or anything have you had conversations for advice because i know um you're a big fan of sam fender and if you work with lewis capaldi you've supported him i well actually i i went to see lewis capaldi's first show in london and then we ended up having a bit of a drunken night out afterwards because i didn't realize he knew my music so i was about to leave the venue and he goes oh reese and then he was sort of talking to some fans and so then he called me over and I had a chat with him and one chat led to a pint and the pint led to about seven. And before you know it, we're like getting taxis at 4am and he was off to another show in, I mean, he's, he's ridiculous. But yeah, he was off to a show abroad. So we actually didn't catch up for another few months and then we met up again in Paris. But he's, he's been one of those people that I just chit chat on Instagram or whenever it is that we uh, see each other at a festival or something. But he, I mean. Does he give you advice? He hasn't actually, but I, I've spoken to lots of artists at, you know, festivals and, and, and it's one of those things that it's nice to chat to people that have gone through the touring thing. And um, obviously Lewis has probably gone through it in a, a hundred times over compared to what I have because he's just been extremely busy. But I think everyone has that kind of understanding of what it is and they go, yeah, it's tough, isn't it? And so you get that kind of like knowing <laughs> nod of... of, 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 of <laughs> I'm knackered. Yeah, and, then you, and sometimes you'll, you'll share, you know, this, you go to the same weird bar in that strange town in Holland and everyone's like, oh, I've been to that one. That's really strange. And they, So then you get these odd stories that everyone seems to have uh, on tour where it's, it's, it's yeah, because the places you go through, often you go to the same venue and you go, oh, did you meet the guy, the, the guy who works behind the bar? He's a bit strange, isn't he? And so you, you, <laughs> because cause of the, cause there aren't loads of venues, especially in America and things like that, the, the venues are kind of of that size in that town. It's the same one. And so in this, and the same happens in Europe. So you often end up having sharing lots of stories about that, which is quite funny. And, and you talk about um, separating, you know, trying to make it a bit more nine to five, you know, music being your job. Um, mm. I spoke a couple of weeks ago to Guy Chambers, who's Amazing. written loads of yeah. of massive songs and um he says he admits himself he's a bit of a workaholic <laughs> yeah. and um but also though he says you know you really have to get on with people and uh, you know how do you i know you write a lot on your own but you write with other writers as well or would you like to do more of that or are you quite happy no, in your I, caravan doing I, your own thing i i i think collaboration has been key to um me evolving as an artist and I think it's the I, that's the advice I give anyone if anyone says you know how how would you elevate what you're doing I just think work with other people and and I think it's it's one of those maybe it's a sort of thing when you're young or when you're getting into it and you hear about um you know the the, the greats you think they did it all on their own and you think Bob Dylan and Paul McCartney and all of these people even even the Beatles didn't write some of those songs together you know John Lennon brought in a song and they go oh wow that's amazing and you think this idea of like being an artistic genius you kind of have to do it all but then the more you delve into it the more you realize that a lot of those people they 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 had partnerships and they had creative outlets and and, and people to, to to spark ideas off and, and that's been so valuable for me and Aidan who I'm here at the moment with he's been a huge huge part of um, me growing as an artist and developing a sound and musically exploring places that I couldn't on my own and so 
he's one of those virtuoso musicians who has a real depth for harmony and his knowledge is something that I find extremely inspiring to work with and so that kind of collaborator in your life is is is, is a huge thing so I, I I have a few people in in my kind of world that I, I, I sort of work with and it's really I, I think collaboration is the best thing ever so it's it's one of those things that if you maybe when you're young you think as you say that, that collaboration is it's like you want to do it yourself because it's all about your ego and then the more you go actually I could get someone who's way better at that to come and do it and I would be inspired even more to carry on writing that song if that piano part sounded incredible and it was played by an amazing piano player and or, or I could write a song with a way better songwriter because I'm going to learn something and if, if I think when you start leaving that kind of ego at the door and you just you, you get inspired and excited by people that are way better than you that can bring something exciting to what you do I think that opens up so many possibilities and it and it and it feels suddenly like when you're in a writing session you're responding to something as opposed to um trying to think about what to write about if that makes sense is you go yeah. from you go from being trying to create something out of thin air to hearing something and then just reacting and I think all of the all of the songs I feel like I'm most proud of have come from a place where you're reacting to something and it happens without you thinking and then you go how did we when did we write that I don't it it sort of comes out of uh, 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 improvisation and I think you can only really do that when you're not thinking and so having other people in the room and people especially who offer something so musical and so creative is really really valuable and because and you've had strings on some of your music and yeah. different arrangements, is that Aidan brought that into the room or is that something that's just developed over time? Yeah, well, I think it's, again, uh, a huge part of that's been Aidan because he's uh, he's really good at arranging strings and, 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 and uh, that kind of sound is something I've always wanted to capture on a record. And we were able to do it with a quartet, which meant it wasn't too expensive. And um, having Aiden arrange it in a way that kind of suited the song is it's it's a it's an art form really. And like you get the likes of Quincy Jones doing it for Michael Jackson, and he and you know George Martin for the Beatles. And then so to find someone like Aiden who's beautifully arranged something to a song that captures the, the feeling of what I wanted to get across with it is it's, it's kind of like having a little magician to to kind of come yeah. come and come and make something really really beautiful on on a on a song that you you can imagine but you can't create without someone who knows what they're doing doing it so i, I think uh he's a producer in the in the in the sort of in the roundest sense of the word he you know he knows exactly how to create these sounds and also how to um to bring string parts to life or arrange things like that so it's it's, it's, it's it feels very kind of old school in a, in, a, in a certain sense so we recorded a lot of the music to tape and he's he's a he's a bit of a guru with that and he knows what he's doing in that respect so to have someone that I'm really learning whilst creating with is is quite uh so it's a yeah it's a privilege really and, and you talked about how you know you write a lot of emotional songs but you know a lot maybe people don't well the, yeah fans do but not everybody will know that some of your songs can be quite political like better than today is that something mm. that you're going to do more of or is that just leave that at the side depending on how you're feeling well it's weird I I actually thought a lot about this because I, I got asked a similar question about kind of music and politics and um, I would say I don't think I'm necessarily a political person I think I, I I'm, I'm aware and up to date with current affairs but I wouldn't say I'm an activist by any means or someone who's kind of really engaged but there are times when uh, music is is a great way to as an outlet for me and my, the, the things I'm that are keeping me up at night thinking about and I think uh, what that was you know the the, the kind of um, the Brexit thing and, and and the elections have been such a divisive um, sort of political time that we've been through and so it felt I felt compelled to write about it but it's it's not something I'm necessarily um, actively trying to do. It just mm. it's something that when in same as the climate change thing, there's a song on the record about climate change, but I'm not actively trying to seek out opportunities to be political or to, to, to comment. I just think there are some moments in in our lives where we go, actually, I really do feel like it just pops into your head. And you go, I feel like I could write. I want to write about that, you know, so I'm not necessarily trying to be more politically engaged, but I do think it's nice to just write things that you feel passionate about. And, and if it feels authentic, then I think it's worth writing about. But I, I don't want to be. I don't want to try and force a political message in music. I think it's um, just something that, yeah, I just try and write about what I care about. And if those things happen to be sort of politically inclined, then yeah, they become that. Why not? Yeah, why not? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is interesting that music used to be such a vehicle for political conversation and change. And it's weird how I don't think the message of politics is 
it is, is as digestible in music anymore. I think that the biggest artists in the world aren't necessarily being political. And it's interesting that, you know, you look at Bob Dylan, he was the voice of a generation and the voice of a movement. And, you know, he was talking about the Vietnam War and things like that. And you think, I wonder, with all the things that are going on in the world, I wonder why the biggest artists in the world aren't talking about it or potentially shying away from being political in their music because maybe music has changed and it's more escapism now that we seek in music. I don't know. Well, maybe they're all in lockdown, just <laughs> yeah. creating masterpieces like Who you know? are. <laughs> Hopefully, fingers crossed, we'll have like this series of wave of political hits from Ariana Grande. Can you imagine Ed Sheeran writing a song about Boris Johnson? That'd be amazing. <laughs> I don't think that would work. Yeah. I, I, well, I might be wrong. We'll have to see. <laughs> Can't wait now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you talked about um, Bob Dylan and some of the music that you listen to, that your parents listen to, but other stuff that you... And you mentioned... It was Arctic Monkeys when you. I, gather, I, I, am, yeah. I get the impression you were a fan of them. Who who else was on your your CD player? Because it was probably before oh. streaming and all that. Who yeah. albums that you really just lived on your CD? Well, player? I lived on. I my my friend Rob had all of the Led Zeppelin CDs. His dad had a good record collection, and so I I, I was I was really into kind of like you know like the Fratellis and Franz Ferdinand and uh, mm. the Cribs. There was, there was loads of indie bands and uh, Bombay Bicycle Club, all of that stuff. And then I think it was just because of the record collection that Rob had, I started burning CDs from Rob's collection and like printing out the <laughs> sleeves and like cutting them up, making these bootleg CDs because oh, I nice. didn't have enough pocket money at the time to, to buy old uh, Led Zeppelins. But we went through loads. Like, there was like ACDC, like all the, all the, all the classic rock, really. Um, and Jimi Hendrix. And I, I had a Eric Clapton unplugged phase for a while when I got into acoustic guitar. And so mainly it was because of learning guitar at the time even with the Arctic Monkeys it was um the kind of energy of their the sound that they created that kind of drew me in and actually Alex Turner is one of those people that you you, you I, I kind of got in, hooked on that music because of the energy that they were creating and the sort of aesthetic of it all and then I realized oh sh that his his lyrics are actually really interesting and poetic and they're actually describing a night out that I can really relate to and it was the first time I was listening to indie music with a lyrical kind of observation and, I, and I, I remember at the time thinking I'd love to try and do that and put my mm. thoughts into words or you know create a story and he's one of those incredible songwriters that seems to just effortlessly put things into a song and, and that was the that was kind of the turning point when I was about 16 where I go actually you can just you can you, you can you can write riffs but you can also write lyrics and I think that was quite an interesting turning point and that's when I started to get into those kind of classics like Carole King and Bill Withers because you go their lyrics are you know straight up amazing <laughs> and was it an Arctic Monkeys song that you think oh I wish I'd written that is there a particular song that you just like if I could do if I could replicate not you know copy it but do something which is just perfection which song would it be oh well it's not an Arctic Monkeys song but there's a song uh called She's Always a Woman by Billy Joel and yes. that song I think it's so real and it's also so poetic and so kind of clever, but also not clever. It's just, I don't know, there's this, this amazing balance of uh, of things going on in that song. And I just think it clearly just came from a real place. And it's just genius and it's beautiful. And to, to have summed up someone's life like that, the way he does with the person he's talking about, is, I think it's amazing. And it's, it's so timeless. And even the music that goes with it and the way it changes key it's just that musically it's just it's basically that song has everything and it's just a stand up you gave me a shiver when you told me you mentioned the song i was like oh yeah i love it yeah, it's, it's and it's it's, it's it's spine tingling songs like that isn't it that you turn up loud on the radio and that you never get sick of yeah there's a and actually i i think i've that that kind of timelessness and and, and the artists that i still listen i mean like there's I, I covered a song last week that i love called so far away by carol king because i think it's got a really nice message for the current sort of times but mm. listening to some of those lyrics you just go that is never gonna get old like that's never gonna go out of fashion you just think that's incredible mm. and it hits you and I think I've always thought if you can write something that can kind of transcend time and in 20 years you put it on and it still means something I think that's that's like that's that's what I hope some of my lyrics have or I've always hoped to try and achieve in 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 some respect is try and create something or aim for something that you think in 30 years time would this still be emotionally engaging would this still be something that you'd want to sing about or hear about and I think that's a nice thing to try and not that I've achieved it but it's a nice thing to try and strive for every time you sit down at a, a piano or with a guitar because it's knowing the how much how many great songs there are out there to try and emulate something of that caliber is, is quite inspiring so I always hope to find something 
in in what I write about that has that timelessness in it, even if I haven't quite reached that yet. But it's a nice thing to aim for. <laughs> well, definitely. It's a bit like being, I guess, like a, a designer, an architect and, and designing a building that's still standing 30 years on and it's still, yeah. still people go, wow, yeah. it's, it's making a bit of a mark, isn't it? Yeah, and actually saying something in a way that has never been said before, but people wonder why it hadn't, because it's especially when something can be said in so few words so simply and 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 suddenly you go why didn't I write that that's incredible and when it when a when a when a small lyric like I don't know whatever it is even like you've got a friend like just the way she presents that idea you just Mm. go ah and it just makes you feel you know comforted by by this by this thing and so I I think every every songwriter around the room, uh, sorry, around the world, who's in in studios or in bedrooms or living rooms trying to create music, is somewhere searching for a bit of that. And I think that's that's a nice thing to aim for. And yeah, I think. Uh, and when you're writing something, do you think, yeah, that's it, I've got it, or do you have to to tweak quite a lot? But often you probably know straight away if this if something's going to work. I think the more I've gotten into it, the more I've I, I've I've gotten an instinct for that one line that might feel like the the kind of thing to pin everything around or the the message of the song and maybe even even like when I write ideas down in my phone or my notebook I think I the more I write now I I find those things to start with because I think if you can find something to start with in that respect then it's almost like you want to I so it's like you want to create the house before you um, before you build the path to it, because otherwise, you, you know, the house is the main thing. So if you can create something that's that's really engaging and find something that you feel has the most emotion to it, if you can gr- build that bit first, the rest is kind of just a path towards that. So um, I think I've gotten hopefully a little bit better at knowing how to build I- something around a, a sort of core idea. But it is it's it's a weird one because I used to just start from like a verse or whatever and just see where it flowed. But now I I seem to start from the kind of core message and then work backwards. Yeah. Ah, so it's changed slightly. It has a little bit, yeah. And then it's so so satisfying when people sing along to your songs at, at gigs and we've talked about you know how exhausting it is going on tour, but you must have a memory of the worst gig ever and the oh. best gig ever so far anyway. Oh, well, let's start with the best because that was that's that's <laughs> that because that, that there's been a lot of worst gigs, but uh, <laughs> they sort of blur into one. So uh, <laughs> Uh, the, 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 the best gig ever. Well, it's weird. There's, there, there, there are a few, but the one that I think stood out was when I sold out, um, a venue in Amsterdam and it was the, it was the end of my first ever, um, sort of European tour. And my, my family were there and a few friends were there. And it, it was, it was weird because no one else in the crowd, normally if I've sold out a show in London, it's been half the crowd is, my family and friends and, and, the, and the record label or whatever it is and then you get a few fans like real fans that have turned up but the majority of the room is people you know and then when you go to a foreign country to a city you've barely ever been to and you see a room full of people you just don't know and you just think that's really bizarre that they know this they know the songs they bought a ticket they've come out on friday night to, to watch the music I, I sort of go oh wow that's weird i didn't realize that was that was what this is uh, yeah. So then, and then my, I think my, my, even my parents were quite shocked. They go, that felt like a real gig, didn't it? Like, you know, fi- <laughs> 500 people that we don't know there to see you play some music. And, and I, 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 it was a real penny drop moment. I was like, this is mad. Like to have, if I, if I never do another gig again, I can sort of say it was a bit, it was real for a second. It felt like a real thing. So uh, that was a really special. And they haven't come to see one. Gary Barlow, have they? They've come to see you. Yeah, they, and my parents came to, there was no sign of Gary Barlow there. So yeah, my parents were there just for me, which is great. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that was probably the best gig. And it was, it was obviously the last day of a tour as well. So to get through a tour and have, you know, have your health and not have lost your voice is always a, a relieving mm. thing. A bonus. And so, so yeah, it really is, yeah. And then the worst gig, I mean, there's, I don't, I can't remember the one specifically. It's because it, I think there's always like weird sort of moments to gigs, but there's, there's yeah. always moments like that. I take, I can sum up the, the gen, the worst gig generally goes like this. Like you go out on stage, the first thing you say over the mic is really awkward and no one laughs. <laughs> And then you start playing and your, your guitar's out of tune. So you have to get through the whole song whilst your guitar's out of tune. Then you forget your <laughs> lyrics and then you fluff up something in the next bit between the little chat you're trying to say. And then the whole gig sort of follows a similar pattern. And then maybe, uh, you know, you, you, forget to, you forget another lyric and then stop a song and start again. 
and then the crowd by that time have just got all kind of got got on their phones and are not bothered so that's basically and they're, how talk- it- <laughs> they're on their phones and they're talking to and they're each talking. other and yeah and, and, and you're you can basically hear them over you singing <laughs> So it's it, and you have to kind of ask the guy to turn up your monitor because everything's really like the crowd's just really chatty. That basically a chatty crowd is the worst thing to play to because you think I may as well just be a CD right now. No, no one yeah. cares. Uh, so yeah, but horrible. listen, those are going to be in the past because you know onwards and upwards with with a new album out and and the second one sort of in the bag. It's it's all good. It's all you know bigger gigs and people putting the well having the phones out, but for you know. Waving them in the air, <laughs> yeah, yeah. looking at them to see what's going on in the Hopefully, world. Hopefully, yeah, fingers crossed. No, it is, it's lovely. And, and, and I would, you know, I, I, I pinch myself sometimes when I go, wow, there's people that want to come along and, 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 and see me play and, and hear the music. So it is, it's amazing. And to, to have not even released a record, I, as you say, like we were, I, I've been kind of releasing music for the last four years. So it seems ridiculous to have not put out an album yet. So it's a big milestone to get through and past. And I think uh, I've learned a lot in the process. So hopefully this second one will be a better album. But who knows? And, and uh, I mean, we've got that, those, the album, that one coming out. I remember the next one. But what else is, is in the pipeline when all this lockdown and strange times are over. I mean, I was going to ask if you ever would like to write for TV or film, but you've kind of done it because you've written, you've done um, your Clover ads, well, haven't you? I wouldn't, but I meant, I, meant, yeah. I meant more, more more than a Clover ad. I was going to say, I wouldn't consider Clover any anywhere near Hans Zimmer. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, imagine, maybe that's where you started as well in TV adverts. But you might have done. But um, I mean, hey, I would, I'd love to write music for TV and film, but I think at the minute I, I'm still getting to grips with writing um, music for myself. So I, hopefully I can spend the next year or so creating this well hopefully not a year but the next few months creating um this second album and, and learning a bit more about the process and fingers crossed it can you know give me a few more years doing it so i, I don't know I, I as i say I, I try not to think too far ahead but maybe i should start um planning for the future no <laughs> stay in the moment enjoy the moment yeah, yeah. I, I mean if we but i say stay in the moment but if we had to look back and think about sort of the, the pivotal moments that have got to to where you are now mm. in your caravan, uh, <laughs> getting ready for your for your album release. I mean, I think your parents did play quite a strong part. I mean, Seriously. things could have gone very differently if your mum had actually contacted Gary Barley. You do realise that you could have replaced Jason Orange. I know. Um, I, I mean, take that. I'm not really that good at dancing, but it's more like movement oh. based, isn't it? In their band, but it's fine. Yeah, they would have. They wouldn't have noticed. No, no. <laughs> but um, so I think you know, parents backing you up is a massive thing. But what other pivotal moments would you say? Have really got you on your way. I think moving to London, I, I, I do believe that because it's not this. It's not the place. You don't have to be in London to do it. But I think for for where I was at at the time, it was the most suitable place for me because I'd sort of cut my teeth as a musician in Oxford, uh, where, where the, the sort of nearest city to where I'm from, and it's such a friendly musical town or city. And there's a real great community there. And I was going to lots of open mic nights and trying to play lots of gigs there and getting to know all the musicians around and, and and I think it primed me for going to London where it's a lot more competitive and cutthroat and it just it, it, I think if you if I'd have gone straight to London without any experience of gigging around a local scene I think it'd been really scary um mm. but I think yeah moving to London was something that I realized oh wow well, there's so many amazing musicians and they're at another level and I've really got up my game if I want to sort of make this a, a real career and so I think moving to London was a real risk because it was something that my parents go, do you really want to do that? Is, are you sure? Is that maybe you could stay here a few more years till you know what you, you know, you definitely want to do. And I think it was a big risk for me to say, no, I'm, I'm sure of myself. And I, t- truth be told, I hated London for the first year. I made no friends. I was living in this really strange apartment block where my, where my sort of neighbours were very odd and difficult. <laughs> And I thought I've made the wrong decision here. And my university course wasn't going so well. I didn't really get on with anyone in my class. And it was, I just thought this is the, this was the wrong decision. So in, in every respect, I just tried my best to make it work. Cause I thought if I've, if I've made this, taken this plunge and made this decision, it was kind of a pride thing. I thought I need to just make this work and just getting better and focusing on music and having, you know, my whole, you know, I was, I was studying it. So I was, I, every day I could dedicate to, to doing music and I had you know the student loan and all that even though I, I kind of spent that in a in a semester whatever in a term yeah, buying sure. buying a buying an acoustic guitar but um <laughs> yeah I think moving to London was probably a, a very pivotal moment because it, it did really open up a different uh musical landscape and, and and my awareness of how how hard it is and how how many great musicians there are trying to do it so yeah and also sticking your music out there because you could have just written some stuff and, and not had the confidence to 
to get it out there and just doing that then opened the doors to getting people to hear it and and then leading to, to getting a, a record deal and a manager as well would you agree absolutely yeah and I, and I think it's uh well it's a weird one because I if I, I reckon if I listen to the demo I put out uh, at the time now I would never put it out but I think there's something that to be learned from the fact that sometimes those imperfections don't really matter to anyone else and that if I listen to it now I go you know that's no, not good enough and my voice sounds flat there and I would never do that but at the time I didn't know and I just put a song out because I liked it and I think a lot of the time those hang-ups you have for your own work are things that other people don't notice and I think I've gotten more anxious about that the more people have started listening to my music but at the time I, I didn't really care about I wasn't you know I didn't have an audience so I didn't really think about whether it was good enough so to speak uh so yeah I think I've learned that actually maybe it's like it's okay to their their imperfections are what sometimes are engaging and it's it's kind of living with that which is or you know accepting them and, and knowing that no one else really notices is, is maybe a good thing and that maybe is advice to anyone who's trying to get into this business and, and trying to succeed is really really believing in yourself it's hard because I I don't I, I didn't like do loads of that kind of put yourself out there do it but I do I do see that you you can't do too much of it and and I I think the more you're 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 kind of even with these a, a caravan sessions I'm doing at the minute I haven't done those kind of live sessions in ages it's really hard like to get a good take and play it well and and, and a good vocal performance it, it's really challenging and and I think those things if you do if you're doing that kind of thing every day and you're writing every day and all of that and you're you're constantly putting it out there to be in a way judged I think you do learn a lot about what you're good at and what you're bad at and it's just about being re real with and, and actually confronting those things because the main thing is 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 working at what you're bad at because I think everyone out there knows their comfort zone and what they do well and then sometimes you get forced to do something you're not very good at and then you can either confront it and go okay yeah that's that's I'm not very good at it or you just shy away from it and get, pretend it didn't happen and I think that's a good thing about putting music out is I think you do get a sense of what connects and what doesn't and you start to look back on your older work and go okay that was a bit rubbish wasn't it I didn't realize at the time but maybe I need to look at getting a vocal coach to help me with that thing or whatever it is and I think that's the you get an immediate reaction from from the internet let's say from people consuming what you do and, and that's taking on that sort of feedback I think is quite valuable. Well, listen, we're really excited about when this album does eventually come out. <laughs> and, and I bet you must be as well. You can't wait for everyone to hear it. And uh, it's it's really, it's it's a difficult time at the moment, but also you must be really looking forward to, to what the future brings in the next couple of months. I am, yeah. I mean, it's as you say, it's a strange time and we don't really know what the next year is going to look like, let alone the next three or four. So I think um, it's going to be a strange time getting back to normality, but to have an album coming out in the diary is, is a really great thing to look forward to. So I hope people like it. I hope uh, hope it's some kind of respite from the strange strange sort of uh, climate we're living in. But yeah, I'm excited and uh, and I'm writing another one. So this is, I'm, 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 I'm doing all right. Yeah. <laughs> You're doing all right. Yeah, definitely. We can't wait to hear that one too. It's just, they're just going to be like, and here's another album yeah, yeah. from Reese Lewis. What's going on? I'll have a fourth <laughs> album done by the end of the year, probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, listen, it's been great talking to you and um, I'm just imagining you in your caravan now. I just think, you know, with the, the, we didn't have any freight trains coming through. I had my loud doorbell, but you didn't get I know, the freight lucky. train. So that's really quite good. Lucky. I've got my children chomping at the bit. But, well, uh, I made some calls to make sure they didn't come through. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but Reese, thank you so much for, for talking to me and, and giving me. your advice and, the, you know, the journey. I sound like Simon Cowell. I hate that. The journey you've been journey, on so far. Your journey. I can't, can't, can't believe I said yeah, that. Yeah, at least you didn't, Be you didn't say X Factor once, so then we're okay. I didn't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, basically, it's just lovely to, to hear your story. And, you know, we wish you every success for the next couple of months and see how, how you fly. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. It's been lovely. Thanks to Reese for taking the time to talk to me. He's on Twitter at Reese Lewis Music, and we're on Twitter at Where Go Right. If you love music, we've got some other great musical guests on the podcast: cellist Natalie Klein, songwriter Guy Chambers, musical comedians Flo and Joan, composer and producer John Metcalf, and recording engineer Olga Fitzroy. We're on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Please rate us; we will love that. Uh, thanks to Megan for production brilliance and Laura Shipsey for the music. See you next week. This episode of Where Did It All Go Right is sponsored by Pearson. Pearson is the world's learning company, supporting talent and helping everyone to make progress in their lives through learning. 
Working with teachers and education experts, Pearson provides a wide range of qualification routes, so you can pick the course which suits you best to develop your skills and stand out in the crowd. Visit them online at go.pearson.com forward slash where did it all go right.